Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Teenagers have a tendency to believe most of what they hear. Most of the time, this just leads to silly mistakes with harmless consequences. But what if the blind belief leads to something more sinister and sadistic? Regardless of what you believe, today's story highlights a long-abandoned practice that a majority of us wouldn't dare take part in. Today, we have for you a story of modern human sacrifice. Corianne Cervantes was a 15-year-old girl from Clear Lake, Texas. She attended Clear Lake Path Alternative School, a school for kids with learning disabilities and personality disorders. Corianne was just like any other teenager. She loved taking selfies, listening to music, and hanging out with her friends. On February 4th of 2014, Corianne skipped school, as some rebellious teenagers do. Her father found out and grounded her for the day but she snuck out of the house as soon as her father left to buy some groceries. Corian met up with her friend Randy, who she accompanied to buy some Xanax. The two then proceeded to hang out and smoke some marijuana together. A little later, the teens went out to meet up with Randy's friend Victor and Victor's cousin Franklin at a parking lot to obtain more Xanax. Initially, they refused to give Corian any Xanax because they didn't want her to get, and I quote, all messed up. However, later on in the evening, around 5 p.m., Randy gave in and agreed to give her half a pill. It started to get cold outside, but the teens weren't ready to call it quits. Teenagers. This seems like a lot of Xanax runs, though. I knew nothing about Xanax as a teenager. (laughs) The worst we had at parties was like four locos and marijuana. Right? (laughs) Me neither. But what teenager ever wants the party tent? Right. Luckily, the teens knew of a place they could go to continue the party. A middle-aged woman named Candy lived in a complex nearby called the Bay's Apartments. Candy knew a couple of the boys from Corian's school named Jose Reyes and Victor Alice and would allow the boys and their friends to use their apartment to smoke marijuana and drink. This is so weird. Why is a single middle-aged woman partying with teenagers? Unless these are friends of your own child, I can't imagine a way that this isn't inappropriate. It's just very weird. In my opinion, she's partially responsible for whatever happens to any of these teens that night. I completely agree. Hopefully, she at least tries to keep it under control. Well, like many teenage parties, even if we don't care to admit it, they partied hard. Corian was no exception and joined in with her peers taking part in drinking games and smoking marijuana. Corian knew both Jose and Victor from school, but she had no idea that those guys didn't have the same intentions as the rest of the teenagers at that party. Their plans for that night were something much darker. The main drug all the teens, including Jose, Victor, and Corian took that night was Xanax. After several hours of being at the apartment, Corian became so intoxicated that she started slurring her words, stumbling, and struggling to walk. Candy, trying to help, offered to let Corian stay the night, partially because she was intoxicated, but also because she claimed Corian had told her that her father locked her out of the house as a result of her sneaking out. Corian made her way to the extra bedroom, and Victor followed behind her. He claimed that him and Corianne started fooling around and engaged in consensual sex. 
Shortly after, Jose interrupted them, and that's when Candy noticed both boys in the room with Corianne. Yeah, that's not okay. Even consensual sex is not okay when she's that messed up. That is rape. It's bad enough that she was intoxicated, but she's also on Xanax mixed with alcohol, and that does not put you in a state to consent to anything. Exactly. Candy was not okay with this and told the boys to leave her apartment. They convinced Corianne to come with them and told her that they would take her to her friend Jocelyn's, who lived in the same apartment complex. Instead, they led her to a vacant apartment their friend Arturo had shown them. Arturo wasn't at the party or the abandoned apartment that night, but the place was up for grabs anyways. Big red flag. As the adult, she should not have let the vulnerable drunk teenage girl be taken away by two teenage boys. She should have had Corian call her dad or dropped her off herself. At the very least. Around 9 p.m., once at the vacant two-story apartment, the boys Victor, Jose, and Franklin proceeded to an empty closet. Franklin was under the impression that they were just going to smoke some weed, but he quickly got uncomfortable when he realized the other boys had something else in mind, and he went home. Franklin actually lived with Victor and even shared a room with him. Franklin claimed to have fallen asleep as soon as he got home, but was awoken by Victor and Jose loudly sneaking through the bedroom window. They shared a brief conversation before Jose snuck back out the window. Franklin said that Jose appeared to be angry when he left, but didn't know why. Victor and Franklin stayed up talking for a while before going back to sleep. The people willing to turn a blind eye in this story really bother me. Candy and now Franklin saw that these boys had bad intentions and they could have helped get Corian out of that situation, but they chose not to. Either one of them could have changed the narrative and saved her life. So what did happen to her? In the early morning of February 9th, five days later, that good friend of Corianne and Jose, Arturo, decided to head over to the abandoned apartment around 2 a.m. to smoke some weed. Upon opening the door, he immediately closed it. His heart was racing. A body was lying motionless on the living room floor. Due to the condition that Corianne was left in, Arturo didn't even realize it was his friend. Around 4 a.m., Arturo was too shaken up to not call attention to what he had just come across. So he ran to his brother's apartment and told them what he had found. He told them that he saw a woman on the floor who wasn't moving and was badly injured. All three brothers went to the apartment to check out the scene and to see if they could save her, but quickly noticed that she had no pulse and called 911. Why not just call police straight away? Why go over there? Well, I read that one of the brothers had a CPR certification, so it's likely that they thought that they could save her. And Arturo, being the teenager that he is, probably thought that he would get in trouble for admitting that he was sneaking into an apartment. Oh, sure. That makes sense. Once the police arrived, they found the woman naked from the waist down in a Rob Zombie t-shirt with a black bra on top. The police noticed someone had carved an upside-down cross on her abdomen and that she was clearly raped. Another creepy detail was the various religious trinkets surrounding her body that had obviously been left by the killer. Police couldn't identify her right away, but with the help of forensics, they were able to use her dental records and x-rays to identify the lifeless body as Corianne's. Wow, she was so badly beaten that her own friend couldn't recognize her. That must have traumatized the community. Yeah, before long, the entire neighborhood knew about the discovery of Corianne's body. Jose had even been telling Piers what he had done and even contacted his sister and asked her to come to his mother's apartment to confess that he had murdered a girl. 
He told her the reason he killed her was because while him and Victor were having a threesome with her, she bit his dick and he proceeded to hit her. He said after he hit her, the girl tried to run, but Victor brought her back. Victor then wrapped a belt around her neck, shoved a rod inside of her, and stabbed her with a screwdriver. You did all of this because a girl bit you? I don't buy it. That's major overreaction. It sounds like he has major anger issues. Police were tipped off and arrested Victor midday at his alternative school. He, of course, blamed the murder on Jose. The only thing he took accountability for was consensual sex with Corianne. He said that once the brutal attack began, Jose ordered him not to leave, threatening him. Fearing for his own life, he ran and hid in the kitchen of the abandoned apartment. From there, he heard muted noises and glass breaking. Oh, come on. You feared for your life and hid in the kitchen. Right? Neither of their stories makes total sense. They were just trying to shift the blame. Does he really expect everyone to believe that he just stood on the sidelines? And if it was all Jose, why did he not tell the police once he was safe back at home? Right. He claimed he crept back into the living room, and when he walked in, he saw Jose beating Corian with a toilet tank. He then began to detail specific injuries to Corian's body that the police hadn't even discovered yet, such as using plastic rods from the apartment blinds to rape her. He said Jose passed him the screwdriver, ashtray, and belt to get rid of once they left the apartment. Victor revealed that he had discarded them at a nearby church in the bushes, where the police immediately went after the interview and located them. DNA analysis of the screwdriver found DNA from both boys on it. I'm sure the DNA of both of the boys being on there was shocking to the police and Victor. Maybe the only reason his DNA was on there was because he went to hide the evidence. (laughs) At least he told them where to find the murder weapons. They might not have found it otherwise. But this murder was vicious. No way he just stood by and watched it happen. Oh my gosh. Hopefully she didn't suffer bare minimum. All of the horrific injuries to Corian were inflicted while she was still alive, except for the carving of the cross on her abdomen. It makes it that much worse to know that she was likely aware and suffering at the hands of friends that she had trusted. What an evil act. We'll be right back after a quick break. The four-day trial for Jose Reyes began December 8th of 2014. Jose and Victor were both accused of strangling, bludgeoning, and stabbing Corian to death. The prosecutors believed they had a pretty good idea of the sequence of events that night. The teens left the party and found a vacant apartment to participate in consensual sex. The two boys then, for whatever reason, began stabbing Corianne. When she started to run for the door, they prevented her from leaving the apartment by grabbing the lid to the toilet tank and striking her over the head. That is when they started stabbing her head to toe with a screwdriver. I wish someone would have heard her screaming and busted in the apartment. If there hadn't been two of them, she may have made it to that door. We also have to consider her state of mind at the time. Can you imagine being drunk and trying to figure out what the hell is going on? I can't imagine. She probably didn't know what was real or fake until she felt pain. Corianne started begging for her life, but it seemed to only encourage the boys to ramp up their torture. One of the boys ended up grabbing an ashtray and gouged out one of her eyes. They then grabbed two rods and stuck them up inside of her body. 
Once they tired of the inflicted torture, they repeatedly beat her in the head with a toilet tank until she took her last breath. Ugh, this is one of those cases that was so disturbing, I had to have a glass of whiskey afterwards. This is the kind of torture that no one wants to imagine. I don't blame you. It was definitely hard to stomach. I mean, this is above and beyond taking a life, and none of this was necessary. The evidence presented to the jurors were graphic images of heinous injuries Corian sustained. They consisted of her right eye being gouged out and stab wounds to her face and torso caused by the screwdriver. There were also images of the upside-down cross that was carved into Corian's stomach. Despite the brutality of the injuries inflicted on her, prosecutors believed Corian was still alive throughout the majority of the assault. At the trial, they walked the jury through the autopsy conducted by Dr. Albert Chu. He was unable to determine exactly how many times Corian was stuck with an object. However, her body did show evidence of both blunt and sharp force trauma injuries. Her eyes were also examined, and according to the doctor, her left eye was less damaged than her right, which left evidence of hemorrhaging. I'm still stuck on the fact that she was alive through all of this. Right? That's the worst part for me. Were they able to get any information from the injury to her eyes? Eyes can usually provide evidence of strangulation, but due to the blood in her left eye caused by the hemorrhaging and her right eye being completely destroyed, they could not determine that. The damage to her right eye could have been caused by the toilet cover, but it appeared to most likely to have been caused by the insertion of a rod into the eye socket. This rod was pushed into her eye socket with so much force it ended up going through three sets of bones. The hemorrhaging caused by this suggested she still had blood pressure, meaning Corianne was still alive at the time. They made sure to pretty much treat her like a rag doll. And just when you think they're done abusing her, they take it one step further. They were quite literally picking this girl apart. They did things most people, like us, can't even hear about without feeling sick. They must be truly twisted individuals. Like, when does it end? Well, they recovered two rods from her body that were 25 and 29 inches long. They were both inserted 19 inches into her body. They were so far in her body that they stopped at the top of her abdomen, almost reaching her chest cavity. They also noticed damage to the vaginal area, but could not determine if this was caused by consensual or non-consensual sex. All of the other injuries could not be determined if they had happened before her death due to the decomposition of her body. I think it's safe to say that the sex was not consensual, and I will never believe it was. I'm sure that it was hard for her family members and her friends to hear. Like, the one thing that I would be thinking the entire trial is why they couldn't have just given her a quick death. She was in pain until the very end. I know. I can't even imagine what she must have been thinking or feeling. This case makes me sick to my stomach. Me too. In conclusion, the doctor stated he had found numerous fairly deep wounds around her neck. He also stated that 60 stab wounds were consistent with the screwdriver police recovered after interviewing Victor. These injuries caused a great amount of internal bleeding. She either ultimately died from that or the blunt and sharp force trauma she endured. Both of Jose's attorneys argued that Jose may be guilty of murder, but not capital murder. Sham will go into a little more detail about these distinctions for us. 
For a crime to be considered murder in Texas, it must consist of one of the following. The person intentionally or knowingly caused the death of an individual. The person intends to cause serious bodily injury and commits an act that causes the death of an individual. Or the person causes the death of an individual during the commission or attempted commission of a felony. If found guilty of murder, the defendant may be sentenced to imprisonment for life or a term of anywhere from 5 to 99 years. In addition to imprisonment, a fine up to $10,000 may be imposed. Murder is elevated to a capital offense when the murder occurs under specific circumstances, such as the individual killed is a peace officer or a fireman in the line of duty and the person knows the individual is a peace officer or a fireman. The killing occurs during the commission or attempt of the following felonies, kidnapping, burglary, aggravated sexual assault, arson, obstruction, or retaliation, or a terroristic threat. The killing was committed for payment or promise of payment. Both the person who kills another and the person who hires a person to kill are guilty of capital murder. The killing is committed by a person incarcerated. The person kills more than one individual either during the same criminal transaction or during different transactions but under a common scheme. The person killed is under 10 years old. The individual killed was a judge or justice and the killing was committed in retaliation or on the account of the judge or the justice's service. If found guilty of capital murder, the charge carries a penalty of life in prison without parole or the death penalty. They totally kidnapped her. She was clearly too impaired to understand what was happening when they led her from Candy's house. And when she tried to leave the abandoned apartment, they stopped her. I think they fall under capital murder for various reasons. I agree. But Jose's lawyer stated that just because they stopped Corianne from leaving doesn't equate to kidnapping, which I disagree with. It should at least equal false imprisonment. His reasoning for this was that grabbing someone doesn't automatically make the crime a capital murder. This conviction would mean a life sentence with the eligibility for parole in 40 years. Since they were minors at the time of the crime, they wouldn't have been eligible for the death penalty in Texas. False imprisonment occurs when a person who does not have legal authority or justification intentionally restrains another person's ability to move freely. However, kidnapping is when one person abducts another to a new place, usually followed by holding them against their will. If I were a prosecutor, I might argue that because the boys told Corianne that they were taking her to her friend's apartment and took her to a new location, then held her there, that that does fall under kidnapping. The only witness we have that Corianne even willingly went to the abandoned apartment is Victor's cousin Frank. Exactly. Besides, Frank didn't even stick around to see them stopping her from leaving. I'm just saying, we don't really know everything that was said and not said that night. And Frank may have been saying whatever he could to protect Victor. Prosecutors pointed out that because of the kidnapping and sexual assault, his crimes fall under the act of capital murder. There were also letters that Jose wrote in jail during the nine months waiting for his trial. These letters stated that the devil was the one watching and directing him during the act of Corian's murder. He always has such nice things to say, so let's hear it. (laughs) In one of the letters, Jose wrote the following. My mistakes are my mistakes. Nobody, I don't blame no one. 
but the thing that came in my life from the first time I sold my soul. I hope you understand it wasn't me that day. I remember everything, but I know it wasn't me. I couldn't do nothing about it because he was standing there watching me and Victor do our jobs the way he wanted it to be done. My life is fucked up. I know that I will come out of this situation I put myself in since day one. I was sick-minded, stabbing that hoe 60 times. It's all good. It's what the devil asked for. Excuse me? Stabbing that hoe 60 times? Let me tell you something. You and your soul brutally took that life. I don't care if it was Lucifer himself watching you or your homeboy Victor hiding for his life in the kitchen. You don't get to say it wasn't you that day. Yeah, he sounds so remorseful, right? Who are these guys? Like, what the hell was wrong with them? Jose was a 17-year-old rebellious young man and showed signs of worrying behavior early on. He was very open about worshiping Lucifer, even going as far as telling his peers that he had sold his soul to the devil. His room was covered in dark religious artifacts and satanic imagery. These were all items that Jose bragged about using during his rituals. Victor was 16 years old and, like Jose, shared many of the same dark interests. Victor was looking for more involving the occult and Jose ultimately became his mentor. Victor had shared with Jose that he would like to also sell his soul to the devil. According to Jose, he told him that Satan would accept his soul if he killed someone. So many red flags. Like, where do I start? Worshipping Lucifer or killing someone for Lucifer? I don't know. People probably thought they were just stupid teenagers trying to be different to get attention. Did the jury even need to discuss this case? Because it seems so open and shut. The prosecutor's closing arguments included that Jose's own words proved they killed the girl because they wanted to sell their souls to the devil. Assistant Harris County District Attorney Martina Longoria stated, There are so many horrible, heinous, and inhumane things this defendant did. It took less than two hours for the jury to reach a decision. They disagreed with Jose's attorney, who suggested if he was guilty of a crime, it would be murder. Once the verdict was announced in the courtroom, Corian's aunt, Michelle Abernathy, said that Jose came across, and I quote, morally and spiritually dead. She not only blamed Jose, she blamed his parents for the murder of her 15-year-old niece, too. I do believe a child can be a product of their home life. Not to say others haven't had the strength and determination to change that view. There's only so much parents can do sometimes, though. Regardless of how he was raised, unless both of his parents brutally tortured him or animals, they could not have seen this coming or thought that their child was even capable of this. Right. I don't think it's fair to judge the parents without more information. Well, Jose and Victor were both convicted of capital murder and sentenced to life in prison shortly after their trials. Okay. Can we just talk about the devil part for a minute? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Let's talk about it. I find it hard to believe that Jose and Victor were worshipping Satan, but more likely used that excuse to give in to their demented personal fantasies. It's also possible that they were impressionable young men with pre-existing mental health issues that lashed on to devil worship hysteria and believed the random crap they found on Google, deluding themselves into believing they would be rewarded for committing horrible acts. It's clear that they fed off of each other. 
I also know that if you're around someone in psychosis and trust their words, it's possible that'll rub off on you. I have known people suffering from schizophrenia that latched onto a higher power and thought the devil or demons were with them. I've also witnessed someone believing they could communicate with Jesus outside of prayer. They had to have been suffering from some form of mental illness to commit that kind of act and have zero remorse afterwards. It doesn't even sound like real Satanism. Exactly. In reality, Satanists oftentimes don't even believe in a literal devil. The Church of Satan is a closed religion by invitation only, not by selling your soul to the devil or anyone else. Satanists are atheists who adopt Satan as a symbol of their libertarian ideals of the freedom to indulge, mixed with a dash of self-serving and the end justifies the means of typed attitudes. They have rules and don't encourage hurting people or animals for ritualistic purposes. I have friends that are Satanists, and I can tell you from exposure, they are kind-hearted people and would never turn a human sacrifice, no matter what the internet tells them. Right? This was just kids making up horrible stuff as they go along. I feel like they got their information from the 1800s, because this is not part of modern Satanism. (laughs) (laughs) The devil made me do it has been an excuse used for centuries, and in my opinion, is pure and utter crap. People need to take responsibility for their actions. We may never know what really caused Hazan Victor to commit such heinous crimes on an innocent teenager who had her entire life ahead of her. Was it mental illness, or did the young men really believe that this was the task they had to complete in order to sell their souls to the devil? If they truly believed all they had to do was murder someone, why go the extra mile and brutally torture them too? We may never know, and we hope that no one ever has to endure this false ritual again. NAMI offers support and education programs for families and individuals living with mental health conditions. NAMI recognizes that the key concepts of recovery, resilience, and support are essential to improving the wellness and quality of life for all persons affected by mental illness. Find your local NAMI location at nami.org find support or call their helpline at 800-950-NAMI. That's 800-950-6264. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode was done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. Sham, what's our Conjure tip of the week? This week, we want to talk about fluorite. This is a beautiful purple and green crystal that promotes focus, intuition, and understanding. It helps to bring chaos into order, promoting stability, free thinking, and clear of unbiased reasoning. Fluorite is a highly protective stone, especially on a psychic level and from outside influences. Fluorite draws away negative energy and stress, cleansing and purifying the body. I love fluorite. I personally keep one on my desk to help me get through the workday. It also adds a beautiful splash of color to my workspace. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.